Maxwell, whenever you're ready, go ahead and read. All right. A reading from the book of Exodus, chapter 33 through 34. The Lord orders Israel to leave Mount Sinai. The Lord said to Moses, leave this place, you and the people oh, you brought out of, uh, out of Egypt, and go to the land I promised to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to their descendants. I will send an angel to guide you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, and the Hivites, and the, Je and the Jebusites. You are going to a rich and fertile land, but I will not go with you by myself you myself because you are a sovereign people and i might destroy you on the way when the people heard this they began to mourn and did not wear jewelry anymore but the lord had commanded moses to tell them you are a stubborn people if i were to go with you even for a moment i would completely destroy you now take off your jewelry and i will decide what to do with you so after they left mount sinai the people of Israel no longer wore jewelry. The Tent of the Lord's Presence Whenever the people of Israel set up camp, Moses would take the sacred tent and put it up some distance outside the camp. It was called the Tent of the Lord's Presence, and anyone who wanted to consult the Lord would go out to it. Whenever Moses went out there, the, the people would stand at the door of their tents and watch Moses until he entered it. After Moses had gone in, the pillar of cloud would come down and stay at the door of the, of the tent, and the Lord would speak to Moses from the cloud. As soon as the people saw the pillar of cloud at the door of the tent, they would, be, they would bow down. The Lord would speak with Moses face to face, just as someone speaks with a friend. Then Moses would return to the camp. But the young man who was his uh, helper, Joshua, son of Nun, stayed in the tent. The Lord promises to be with his people. Moses said to the Lord, it is true that you have told me to lead these people to, the, to that land, but you did not tell me whom you would send with me. You have said that you know me well and are pleased with me. Now, if you are, tell me your plans so that I may serve you and continue to please you. Remember also that you have chosen this nation to be your own. The Lord said, to him, said I will go with you, and I will give you victory. Moses replied, If you do not go with us, don't make us leave this place. How will anyone know that you are pleased with your people and with me if you do not go with us? Your presence with us will distinguish us from any other people on earth. The Lord said to Moses, I will do just as you have asked, because I know you very well, and I am pleased with you. Then Moses requested, Please. Let me see the dazzling light of your presence. The Lord answered, I will make all my splendor pass before you, and in your presence I will pronounce my sacred name. I am the Lord, and I show compassion and pity on those who I choose. I will not let you see my face, because no one can see me and stay alive. But here is a place beside me where you can stand on a rock. When the dazzling light of my presence passes by, I will put you in an opening in the rock and cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take my hand away, and you will see my back, but not my face. The second set of stone tablets. The Lord said to Moses, cut two stone tablets like the first ones, and I will write them on a 
on write the, on them the words that were on the first tablets which you broke. Get ready tomorrow morning and come up Mount Sinai to meet me there on at the top. No one is to come up with you. No one is to be seen on any part of the mountain, and no sheep or cattle are to graze at the foot of the mountain. So Moses cut two more stone tablets, and early the next morning he carried them up to Mount Sinai, just as the Lord had commanded. The Lord came down in a cloud, stood with him there, and pronounced his holy name, the Lord. The Lord then passed in front of him and called out, I, the Lord, am a God who is full of compassion and pity, who is not easily angered, and who shows great love and faithfulness. I keep my promise for thousands of generations and forgive evil and sin, but I will not fail to punish children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation for the sins of the parents. Moses quickly bowed down to the ground and worshipped. He said, Lord, if you really are pleased with me, I ask you to go with us. These people are stubborn, but forgive our evil and our sin, and accept us as your own people. The covenant is renewed. The Lord said to Moses, I, will now, I now make a covenant with the people of Israel. In their presence, I will do great things such as have never done anywhere on earth among any of the nations. All the people will see what great things I, the Lord, can do. Because I am going to do an awesome thing for you. Obey the laws I am giving you today. I will drive out the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites as you advance. Do not make any treaties with the people of the country to, into which you are going, because this could be a fatal trap for you. Instead, tear down their altars, destroy their sacred pillars, and cut down their symbols of the god Asherah. Do not worship any other god, because I, the Lord, tolerate no rivals. Do not make any treaties with the people of the country, because when they worship their pagan gods and sacrifice to them, they will invite you to join them, and you will be tempted to eat the food they offer to their gods. Your sons might marry those foreign women, who would lead them to be unfaithful to me and to worship their pagan gods. Do not make gods of metal and worship to them. Keep the faithful festival of unleavened bread. As I have commanded you, eat unleavened bread for seven days in the month of Abib, because it was in that month that you left Egypt. Every firstborn son and firstborn male domestic animal belongs to me, but you are to buy back every firstborn donkey by offering a lamb in its place. If you do not buy it back, break, it, break its neck. Buy back every firstborn son. No one is to appear before me without an offering. You have six days in which to do your work, but do not work on the seventh day, not even during plowing time or harvest. Keep the harvest festival when you begin to harvest the first crop of your wheat, and keep the faithful shelters in the autumn when you gather your fruit. Three times a year, all of your men must come to worship me, the Lord, the God of Israel. After I have driven out the nations before you and extended your territory, no one will try to conquer your country during the, the three festivals. Do not offer bread made with yeast when you sacrifice an animal to me. Do not keep until following morning any part of the animal killed at the Passover festival. 
each year bring to the, the house of the Lord the first grain that you harvest. Do not cook a young sheep or goat in its mother's milk. The Lord said to Moses, write these words down because it is on the basis of these words that I am making a covenant with you and with Israel. Moses stayed there with the Lord 40 days and 40 nights, eating and drinking nothing. He wrote on the tablets the words of the covenant, the Ten Commandments. Moses goes down from Mount Sinai. When Moses went down from Mount Sinai carrying the Ten Commandments, his face was shining because he, he had seen the had been speaking with the Lord, but he did not know it. Aaron and all people looked at Moses and saw that his face was shining and that they were afraid to go near him. But Moses called them, and Aaron and all the leaders of the community went to him. And Moses spoke with them. After that, all the people of Israel gathered around him, and Moses gave them all the laws that the Lord had given him on Mount Sinai. When Moses had finished speaking with them, he covered his face with a veil. Whenever Moses went into the tent of the Lord's presence to speak with the Lord, he would take the veil off. When he came out, he would tell the people of Israel everything that he had been commanded to say, and they would see that his face was shining. Then he would put the veil back on until the next time he went to speak with the Lord. Thank you so much, Maxwell, for reading all of that. So here we have a lot, right? And there's some a few points I want to highlight here. Um, again, we see Moses' intimacy with God. That's kind of a little title for what's happening in 33, at least in my Bible. Um, and even at the end, you know, again, Moses' mediation, this intercessory he has with the people. Um, how interesting, how beautiful, right? Some things I want to point out. We have here, um, talking in 34, which is really interesting. I love this. Um, we have mentioned in chapter 34, verse 18, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Festival of Unleavened Bread. And I just love this so much because we're going to go into Mark in just a few minutes. And our Lord is going to mention the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And I was going to talk about it in great detail when we get there. But I'm going to talk about it just a little bit here so we know um, kind of what our Lord is talking about when we get there. And then I will um, expand in detail then. So the Feast of Unleavened Bread, um, it kind of began with a Passover Seder ritual meal and lasted a week. It marked the beginning of the barley harvest. And unleavened bread was eaten during this time to symbolize the speed of which the Israelites had to leave Egypt. <clears throat> Though there was no time to let the bread rise. So the Feast of Weeks, or Pentecost, began seven weeks after the barley harvest to celebrate the start of the wheat harvest. So this kind of sort of along a week-long week-long feast came to be seen as a celebration of God's covenant with the, with Israel. In the third week-long festival, the Festival of Booths, also called the Festival of Tabernacles, was celebrated as the produce of as the produce of the land was gathered. Because the booths are tents, the feast reminded the Israelites of the time they 
spent wandering in the desert. Really interesting, and I will um, get into more detail about the tabernacle, the feast of unleavened bread, um, when we go into Mark. But really interesting. Again, I wanted to point out a few things. Um, in also in chapter thirty-four, verse thirteen, and the Lord says, "Tear down their altars. He's going to tear down their altars, mash their sacred stones." And cut their asharas. Ashara was the name of a Canaanite goddess, actually. And in her honor, wooden poles were built, just as pillars, if we remember, if you may know, were um, built in honor of Baal. And they were both of the god Baal. And they were both placed in, near the altar in the Canaanite shrine. Going for the next verse. Um, jealous is his name, as the Lord says, right? Kind of this reiteration we see in the Ten Commandments <clears throat> that we are called to have no other gods, no false idols, because the Lord is a jealous Lord, right? Jealous God. Um, really interesting stuff there. And I also wanted to highlight uh, one more thing before we move on. Verse 20 in chapter 33 no one can see me and live so reflecting on the tradition that to see god meant instant death and we saw this a couple chapters back um when only moses was able to go up or still is on mount sinai um because everyone else would be struck down right so this tradition um this is a contract this is actually contradicted by statements that Hagar in Genesis and then Jacob in um, Genesis and his and Manoah and his wife and judges all see God yet live. It's very interesting um, and this intimacy again with um, certain people, right? So any questions before we move on to Job? Jimena, whenever you're ready, Job 42. Job is humbled and satisfied. Then Job answered to the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be powered. Who is the hides counsel without knowledge? Before, Therefore I uttered, what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I, d I did not know. Here, and I will speak, and I the question to you, and I declare to me, I had heard of you, and hearing of, of you by hearing of the hear, of the ear. But now my eyes see you, therefore I despite you, and I am repent in the dust of, of ashes, and ashes. Job's friends are humiliated. The Lord has spoken these words to Job. The Lord said to Ephelias the Temite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right and my servant Job has. Now therefore, take seven bulls and take and seven rams and go to your servant job and offer it up 
offer for yourselves a burnt offering, and my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer, and then I'll deal in according to your folly. For you have not not spoken of me in the right of the my servant, and has done. So Ephelias attended the Bilad, the Shemit, the Soflar, the Nevate, and did and did what the Lord had told him, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Job's fortunes are bes- are restored twofold. And the Lord restored the fortunes of, of Job, and he had prayed with his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before. Then there came to us him his brothers and his sisters, and all that he known with him before, and he ate bread with his him and his his house, and showed him sympathy and comforted out of the evil of of the Lord, and and brought him upon him, and each of them gave him the piece of money and the gold ring. The Lord blessed him in the latter days of of Job, and more than the beginning, and had fourteen thousand sheep. 6,000 camels, a 1,000 yoke of oxen, a 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. He named the first Jeremiah, Jemimah, the second son, Kiza, and the third, Karen, Karen, in the land where there is no woman in the beautiful of Job's daughters. And their father gave them the inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived for 140 years. And saw this, his children and his children's children for four, four generations. And Job died old and full of days. Thank you, Jimena, so much for reading. So, the last chapter of uh, last chapter of Job, really awesome. Uh, we get this um, Job answering to the Lord, and then the Lord um, speaking to Ilfaz. Um, so interesting, right? So we get here first at um, Job's answer. Well, actually, Job quotes God's own words from um, God's first speech. And he just reiterates that um, Job had affirmed a hope to see, you know, his vindictor, right? And so now he has seen the Lord, um, who he's heard so much about. And the Lord is presenting himself here. And we move to verse 6. Therefore I disown what I have said and repent in dust and ashes. So in some doubt, in the view of God's condemnation, we see that Job does in fact express repentance. Um, it, it kind of describes a change in Job with this in- encounter he has, right? Dust and ashes, kind of um, referring to the human condition. Of course, we see Genesis and, um, or Job's ash heap, right? And so interesting because we know that Job has um, repented and 
or whatever he has done, right? As his friend said, oh, you haven't done this. You have had to do some evil and you don't care. You just are, are doing these sins, right? And we see again this reiteration, the cement of that Job is repenting. And then we go into um, the Lord's response to Ilphaz and kind of he's he's been criticized um Ilfaz is by the Lord for speaking um wrongly but we see in verse seven for not spoken rightly so and we go further and, and job kind of becomes an intercessor for his friends and um interesting because of course he he hadn't been and his friends had talking to him oh of course you have done something and the lord is angry at you and then the lord repays him job twice and full of what he had um how beautiful right and, and sometimes we go through the suffering and we don't get anything back um just the grace from our lord and knowing that we've gone through this trial um, but the Lord is with us, and sometimes that is our only reward, right? But here, Job um, has been paid twice in full for what he had. And Job continues to live this um, beautiful life, and the Lord is a blessing. So we see, thus the Lord blessed the later days of Job more than his early ones, right? <clears throat> and... As we may not always understand um, suffering, we know that the Lord is with us. And I mean, I, I, one of my favorite verses, Romans eight eighteen, I consider all the sufferings of the present time as nothing to be compared as the glory that is to be revealed to us. Right. So the suffering, you know, we may not understand it, but it's not going to last forever. And the Lord is so much bigger than anything that we're going through right now. So. How beautiful, right? And we got to read Job, and now we'll go into the Psalms. And just to remember that the Lord is good, and our Redeemer stands. Suffering, we may not understand, but always has a purpose. So if we have any questions, before we move on to Mark's Gospel. Cannot believe we're done. Oh, sorry, what's up? Um, I was thinking about... Um... Exodus 34, because it says that um, Moses stays with the Lord for 40 days. And I don't know if they are um, like linked in some way with the 40 days of Jesus in the desert. Yes, so I, I believe there's a parallel there, right? Um, really interesting. I think also it was yesterday. It mentioned 40 days, 40 nights that um, Moses was with the Lord and the Israelite people were being impatient, right? Waiting for, for Moses. Um, kind of interesting, interesting, right? Moses, 40 days, 40 nights with the Lord on top of Mount Sinai. But um, our Lord is being tempted 40 days, 40 nights in the desert um, by the devil, right? So very interesting. I'm sure there's a um, parallel there, right? Yeah. Good question. Anything else before we go on? 
great. We have Mark 14. Um, a lot to cover. So much. Um, so much is happening. Right. I'm not going to explicitly go into detail with everything we're going to be reading today. Um, I'm also going to be focusing on the preparations for the Passover, the Lord's Supper, and then agony of the garden, the betrayal, and the rest of Jesus, and then uh, Jesus's or Jesus before the sin, right? So, going to be mostly touching upon those. Let's go on. <clears throat> the conspiracy against Jesus. The Passover and the feast of the unleavened bread were to take place which would take place two days' time. So the chief priests and the scribes were seeking a way to arrest him by treachery to put to him to death. They said, not during the festival, for fear that they may be a riot among the people. The anointing at Bethany. When he was in Bethany, reclining at the table in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came with an albuster jar of perfumed oil. Costly, genuine spikenard. <clears throat> she broke the alabaster jar and poured it on his head. There were some who were indignant. Why has it this been waste of perfumed oil? It could have been sold for more than 300 days wages and the money was given to the poor. They were infuriated with her. Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you make trouble for her? She has done a good thing for me. The poor you will always have with you. And whenever you wish, you can do a good thing to them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anticipated anointing for my body for burial. Amen, I say to you. Whenever the gospel is proclaimed to the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Then Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, went off to the chief priests to hand him over to them. When they heard him, they were pleased and prom promised to pay him money. Then he looked for an opportunity to hand him over. <clears throat> Preparations for the Passover. On the first day of the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? He sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the city, and a man will meet you, carrying a jar of water. Follow him. Wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, Where is my guest room, where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Then he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. Make the preparations there for us. The disciples went off and entered the city and found it just as he told them, and they prepared the Passover, the betrayer. When it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as reclined at the table and were eating, Jesus said, Amen, I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be distressed and said to them, one by one, Surely it is not I. He said to them, One of the twelve, the one who dips with me into the dish, for the Son of Man indeed goes, as is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would be better for that man if he had not been born. The Lord's Supper. While they were eating, the, 
He took bread and said the blessing, broke it, and gave it to them and said, Take it, this is my body. Then he took a cup, gave thanks, gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, This is my blood of the covenant, which will be shed for many. Amen, I say to you, I shall not drink again the fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Then, after singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. So first, <clears throat> to touch a little bit upon first happening um, at the beginning of chapter 14. This is a movement of Mark's gospel. Um, the cross is depicted as Jesus' way to glory, right? In accordance with the divine will. So, this is the passion narrative. It's seen as the climax of um, Jesus' ministry. And I mentioned that yesterday. That those were the last words. Watch. Keep watch. This is seemingly the end of um, Jesus' public ministry. And we're entering into passion narrative now. So, here i am now gonna highlight um as i mentioned the feast of the unleavened bread or jesus says here the preparation of the passover on the first day of the feast of the unleavened bread so this is one of the times when mark uses an expression for the old testament as we just read in exodus of course right as i mentioned um jewish practice and belief but he doesn't define it for us thankfully we went over that a little bit but so, a little bit about the Feast of Unlimited Bread. It was usually, it, we usually think of, of things as to be one day celebration or Passover, right? But it actually takes um, several days, as I mentioned. So it usually takes the form of a Passover cedar, Passover meal. As I mentioned, that will be celebrated in the evening with songs. Um, but that's today. The, the feast that's celebrated today is a little bit different as it was in Jesus' time. The Passover um, that was celebrated in the first century AD, um, these two biblical festivals, Passover and the Unleavened Bread, they were fused into one. So what you ended up with was an eight-day celebration. Uh, that commonly came to be referred simply as the Passover or the Unleavened Bread. So, to think of it, it's kind of similar as we have Christmas octave today, with the Christmas season, um, several days, right? It's not just one day. So, this was true for first century AD for the Passover and Unleavened Bread. <clears throat> although, although what people do is pick one name and they would refer to it, um, but it was always... Uh, the unleavened bread festival that we're talking about the entire eight day celebration because it was so experienced with as a full octave of sacrifices offering lambs in the temple and eating flesh of the lambs and drinking wine the eight day celebration so we will uh find out more about that in leviticus when we get the probably next week yeah um but it'll be a while because it's chapter 23 but the main point when mark says this the first day of unleavened bread he's talking about the full octave because he specifies in the next verse when they sacrifice the passover lamb so that would be on the first day of this eight day festival and that first day was commonly known still as the passover but 
Now, in Jesus' day, there was another difference that was implicit in this verse. Not only was it the entire celebration in October, eight days long, but it just wasn't in, not just a meal. It was a sacrifice. It's very important. Today, when people celebrate the Passover cedars, it's just a meal. You don't have a priest. You don't have a temple. There's no temple. You can't go to Jerusalem and offer the Passover sacrifice anymore because there's no temple to do it in. In Jesus' day, what you had to do is to go down to Jerusalem for Passover and unleavened bread. You had to acquire lamb. You have to bring that lamb to the city of Jerusalem, into the temple in Jerusalem. Then you had to sacrifice that lamb um, and all of that, right? I'm not going to go into the detail of that. But this is what preparing the Passover lamb meant in 1st century AD. It involved the temple. It involved the priesthood. It involved sacrifice. Something that is not part of the contemporary Jewish Passover. So in just these two verses, these first two verses, we have to make sure that we ourselves put our put back in time and realize what's actually being described here is the night on which the Israelites would not just remember the exodus from Egypt, but would engage in temple sacrifice in Jerusalem that involved not just eating lamb, but killing the lamb and all the sacrifice in the Jerusalem temple. So what's going on here in the initial verses that Jesus is sending two of the disciples into Jerusalem to do all of that. To acquire lamb, bring it to the temple, sacrifice it, um, then bring it, which means killing the lamb, um, and then priest and altar, right, and bring it back, the lamb, to the upper room um, in order to skin it, flay it, um, roast it so it could be eaten for the Passover dinner. So I bring this up. We notice that two of the disciples, but Mark doesn't say that. It's only in Mark in Luke's gospel where we discover that it's Peter and John who go into the city of Jerusalem to do this. But another key difference between the ancient and Passover, ancient Passovers, and um, today is that they had to be celebrated Passover in Jerusalem. So what's going on here is that Jesus is having two of his disciples go in, giving them the vital information of what to do, where to go while he stays outside the city until the time has come to celebrate that meal. Now, why does he do this? As far as we can summarize, it's because he already knows that Judas is going to, to betray him. Right, He doesn't want to reveal the location of where he's going to celebrate Passover that night to Judas. And in other words, he has a sacrament to institute before the, pass the Passion begins, so he doesn't want to be betrayed by Judas. He also, though, is under watch from the authorities, so he's going to wait until nightfall and then go into the city and go to his appointed place in this upper room that has been prepared and he's going to keep the Passover with his disciples. So everything so far, um, this is the context for establishment and the context for the Eucharist, this Jewish feast of Passover and unleavened bread. So this is the surrounding context that's going to give meaning to all of Jesus' words and deeds that he's going to carry out in the Last Supper. So, to highlight a few important 
um, steps to prepare the Passovers. Like, what do, do they actually do, right? So let's highlight a few five steps. Number one, they had to choose unblemished male, male lamb. They couldn't just be of any kind. It had to be when I was clean, pure, male one-year-old. In other words, uh, in its prime. You couldn't pick an old lamb, sick lamb, uh, or a lamb of any major defect. It had to be pure, perfect, had to be holy. Second, they would then sacrifice the lamb by bringing it to the temple, bringing it to a low wall, according to Jewish temple, uh, tr Jewish tradition, sorry, where either Peter or John, one of the laymen, would then slit the throat of the lamb, then the priest would catch the lamb's blood. Third, then they would pour out the blood on the altar in the temple, and the priest would do this. This was the priest's job, to pour out the blood. And from first century Jewish sources, we know, like, Jophesis, that tens of thousands of lambs would be sacrificed in one day. The amount of blood being poured out per the priest would have been monumental. Right? It would have been a solemn, somber day, really unforgettable liturgical service that took place once a year, every year in the spring. It's important, <clears throat> um, according to the Bible, though the Passover sacrifice, the preparation of the lamb, did not stop with the death of the lamb. You have to bring the lamb back to wherever you were going to eat it. You have to spit it out and skin it, and you would skin it first. Or spit it and skin it. And then skin it and spit it, and you would roast it in order to eat it, because the sacrifice of the lamb in the temple was completed by a meal that would usually be eaten somewhere else within the city. Now, we can imagine the practical dimensions of this. You know, we get all the pilgrims gathering in Jerusalem. They have to eat their lambs within the city because the Bible says it has to be eaten in Jerusalem. You're going to have to, you're going to have people literally busting at the seams, coming out of the rooftops. Uh, people eating everywhere, in every room of the house, in every building throughout the city in order to celebrate the Passover. So it would have been an amazing and unforgettable evening of feasting within the walls of Jerusalem. And then finally, after that, the meal was consumed. And the Bible says this was to be done every year as an act of remembrance, remembering what God had done for the people of Israel in the Old Testament. Right? We read Pharaoh, a saving friend from Pharaoh, time of Moses, Exodus, Egypt. We know this. We read it. Right? So keeping this all in mind, it's kind of the basic elements of the Bible. Right? There's also one aspect from Jewish tradition that is very fascinating. So what's fascinating is the preparation of the lamb that Mark is describing in this account is according to both ancient Jewish tradition and ancient Christian tradition. The way they would prepare this lamb in order to be roasted was by spitting the lamb in the form of a cross. So actually Justin Martyr, Saint Justin Martyr, who actually grew up in the second century in Syria, had witnessed certain Jewish Passovers. The Sumerians, for example, were still doing it up today, but they still do it up to this day. It describes this, and this is how the Jews prepared their lamb. For the lamb which is roasted is roasted and dressed up in the form of a cross. For one is spit, is transfixed, right? through the lower parts of the head, and one across the back, to which they attach the legs of the lamb. Now, first, is this idea of the um, tens of thousands of 
Passover lambs sacrificed on Holy Thursday, the day the Eucharist was instituted, they would all have been spitted, throughout and roasted in the form cross. So Peter and John would they're going up to the city with which had the seen they've seen these crowds of men coming out of the temple with lambs on their shoulders, elevated and spitted in the form of a cross. In other words, they would see <clears throat> the lambs being crucified before being eaten as a Passover lamb. It's a powerful sign, a powerful shadow that we learn about um, from Jewish tradition of the fact that from the beginning, God had the crucifixion in mind. God has the cross in mind, that the Passover lamb and the sacrifice and all the blood and everything associated with the time of the Exodus is really just a shadow of what is going to be accomplished on Calvary on Good Friday. Christ himself would have seen all these crucified lambs coming out of the temple as he went up to the Passover every year. In a sense, foreseeing a shadow of his own passion and his own death on Calvary. So it's a powerful, powerful expression. And it is kind of all hidden in this little verse. They prepared the Passover. What did that mean? Well, it meant all of these things. But the story doesn't just stop there. Of course, we move on to the Last Supper, where itself where the lamb is consumed, right? So it says, as they were eating, and Jesus takes bread, he blesses it, he breaks it, and he gives it to them, and he does something unexpected. Instead of saying this bread represents the affliction that our fathers experienced when they were in the land of Egypt, which would have been the customary Jewish words over the bread, Jesus says, this is my body. And the same thing, he takes the wine, he takes the cup of wine, and instead of speaking about the blood of the lamb that was put on the doorpost and lintel of the home, or the blood of the lamb that had just been poured out on the altar in Jerusalem, he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So what's going on here? Two things. First, Jesus is revealing to the disciples that he is the true Passover lamb. Just as the body of the lamb was offered as a sacrifice at the time of Moses, just as the body of the lamb was offered in the temple as a sacrifice, so now he too is going to offer his body in order to set us free. Not from slavery to Pharaoh in Egypt, but from sin and death itself. In Matthew's Gospel, it makes this clear, and we read this, a long time ago, right? But you make this clear when it says poured out for the forgiveness of sins. But the same thing with the blood. Whereas the blood of the lamb was poured out on the doorstep, doorpost, forgive me, and lentil of the home to be a sign of the God's protection of his people. Whereas the blood of the lamb was poured out on the altar of the sacrifice in the temple. Now Jesus says, this is my blood of the new covenant which we poured out for many. Now when he makes that statement, blood of the covenant, that is an allusion to another Old Testament text. Not the Passover in Exodus 12, but to Mount Sinai in the establishment of a covenant between God and Israel on that mountain. And we know this very well, right? Oh, so interesting, so amazing. And that is actually from Exodus chapter 24 and we read that right so going further a little bit more to read as i as i said i will be um touching upon more 
before the agony in the garden and um, Jesus before the Sanhedrin. But I'm going to go ahead and read the last of what we have of Mark. Peter's denial foretold. Then Jesus said to them, All of you will have your faith shaken, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be dispersed. But after I have been raised up, I shall go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even though all should have their face shaken, mine will not be. Then Jesus said to him, Amen, I say to you, This is this very night before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he vehemently replied, Even though I should not have to die with you, I will, do not, I will not deny you. And they all spoke similarly. The agony in the garden. Then they came to a place named Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took with him Peter and James and John, and began to be troubled and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is in sorrow, even to death. Remain here and keep watch. He advanced a little and fell to the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible to you. Take this cup away from me, but not what I will, but what you will. When he returned, he found them asleep. He said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Watch and pray that you may not undergo the test. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Withdrawn again, he prayed, praying, saying the same thing. Then he returned once more and found them asleep, for they could not keep their eyes open and did not know what to answer him. He returned a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is to be handed over to sinners. Get up, let us go. See, my betrayer is at hand. The betrayal and arrest of Jesus. Then, while he was still speaking, Judas said of the twelve, arrived accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs, who had come from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. His betrayer had arranged a single sign, a single with him, saying, The man I shall kiss is the one. Arrest him. Lead him away securely. He came in immediately, went over to him, and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. At this they laid the hands on him and arrested him. One of the bystanders drew his sword, struck the high priest's servant, stuck and cut his ear off. Jesus said to them in reply, Have you come out against me, a robber with swords and clubs, to seize me? Day after day I was with you, teaching you in the temple area, yet you did not arrest me, but that the scriptures may be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Now a young man followed him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth about his body. They seized him and left the cloth behind and ran off naked. They led Jesus, Jesus before the Sanhedrin. They led Jesus away to the high priest, and all the chief priests and the elders and the scribes came together. Peter followed him at a distance into the pre high priest's courtyard and was seated with the guards, warming himself at the fire. The chief priests and the entire Sanhedrin kept trying to obtain testimony against Jesus in order to put him to death, but they found none. Many gave false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. Some took the stand and 
testified falsely against him, alleging, We heard, heard him say, I will destroy the temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another not made with hands. Even so, the testimony did not agree. The high priest rose before the, test, the assembly and questioned Jesus, saying, Have you no answer? What are these men testifying against you? But he was silent and answered nothing. Again the high priest asked him and said to him, Are you the Messiah, the Son of the Blessed One? Then Jesus answered, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. At that the high priest tore his garments and said, What for the need have we of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? They all condemned him as deserving to die. Some began to spit on him. The blindfolded him and struck him and said to him, Prophecy. And the guards greeted him with blows. Peter's denial of Jesus. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the high priest's maids came along. Seeing Peter warming her, himself, she looked intently at him and said, You two were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you are talking about. So he went out into the outer courtyard, then the cart crowed. The maid saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This is one this man is one of them. Once again he denied it. A little later the bystanders said to Peter once more, Surely you are one of them, for you two are Galilean. Galilean. He began to curse and to swear, I do not know this man about whom you are talking. And immediately a cock crowed a second time. Then Peter remembered the word that Jesus had said to him. Before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. He broke down and wept. So here we have um, first talking about the agony in the garden, right? So a couple elements I want to highlight here. So Mark's account of the agony in the garden. First, notice that Jesus, who Jesus brings up with him into the mountain, which Peter, James, and John. It's the same triad that he brings up to the mountain of the transfiguration, which is traditionally associated with Mount Tabor. So we see this parallelism between the mountain of the transfiguration and the mountain of Gethsemane and the agony of Jesus in the garden. Another element of Mark that's only in Mark is Jesus' phrase, use of Abba. Now, many people will say that Jesus prayed Abba all the time and that it was a standard method of prayer and that's how he spoke with God. And certainly that can be a reasonable deduction, but it's actually important to notice that this is the only verse in all the Gospels where Jesus calls God Abba. Abba was the Aramaic word for father, as we know. And although people will sometimes say that it meant like daddy, like a childlike version, it actually just is an Aramaic expression for father. So it really was an Aramaic word. It means the same thing as father in Greek. But here we might see is Jesus, in a sense, is lapsing into his mother tongue, so to speak, of Aramaic in the 
prayer of the Hebrew people at the time, which most scholars think is primary Aramaic, using this expression of intisimi, intisimi, I'm so sorry, <laughs> intimacy, sorry, <laughs> Abba, as he prays to God in this in his agony in the garden, right? Another element of Mark's account that's worth highlighting here is the constant theme of watch, 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 right? And we talked about this yesterday, right? That the Greek word is Gregorio or Gregorio, right? Keep watch, awake, keep vigil. And so what Jesus is expecting his disciples to do is stay awake, pray. And that is something that Jews would have done on Passover night. It was customary for the after the Passover meal was completed, to keep watch, to do a vigil, in the same way that people fast from food and drinking during uh, the Lenten season, as we do, right? For example, in ancient Jews would also fast from sleep through prayer vigils, where you stay awake at night with particular, particular focus on praying. And that's what he's asking the apostles to do here. But apparently, the multiple cups of wine they drank at the Passover meal has gotten to them. They are sleepy or they, they can't keep their minds open, their eyes open. So he's calling them to keep watch, but they fail. They're going to fail even more gravely in just a moment. Right? So we see in this context that Judas brings the soldiers from the chief priests and the scribes. <clears throat> and he gives a sign to them he's going to kiss Jesus and betray him with a kiss. And they see Jesus, they arrest him. And we'll notice something in the last verse. It says, They all forsook him and fled. Now Mark adds here, There was a young man following him with nothing but a linen cloth. And they seize him and he runs away naked. Or naked. Um, as we know from people from the south, right? It's funny. But, so what's with this naked young man, right? Who is this person? And more importantly, if Mark is writing such a short gospel, it's only 16 chapters, right? Half as long as the gospel of Mark Matthew. Why does he make sure that we know about this young man who runs away naked from the garden gets sent him? Who is this? Well, the answer is that we don't actually know. Um, kind of a mystery. It's something that's puzzled scholars for centuries and there's been theories about identifying this young man so let's get a couple of those that go back to ancient times but one of the most ancient theories is this young man is the apostle john who actually saint ambrose and saint thomas aquinas and others have said that this figure was saint john who ran away and the argument in favor of that was based on the tradition that john the apostle was the youngest of the 12 disciples and so this, this man's called a young man, so maybe it was the Apostle John running away. But kind of the problem with that interpretation is if we look back in the previous verse, where it says they all forsook him and fled, this appears to contain disciples who had been referred to previously, which had been Peter, James, and John. John was one of the twelve who was with Jesus on the mountain. So another theory that has been propounded since ancient times is this, this is James, the brother of Jesus. It is um, lesser known, right? Um, actually, church father, um, Theophilac. And this is what he says, um, right? And he, 
like people would say that he just wore a single garment um that james was known for his asceticism so people say oh it's maybe james who runs away but obviously there's nothing in this text suggesting that this is james the future bishop of jerusalem but the third ancient option is one that's most interesting kind of the suggestion that the young man involved here is someone from the upper room which modern scholars would actually say that actually built to suggest that it wasn't just someone from the upper room but it was actually john mark himself the author of the gospel how would that work well according to this theory uh, the victor of antioch is the first person who propounded this really interesting what he just suggests is that this young man was in the place where jesus and the disciples had celebrated the passover the upper room and that's when jesus judas went out and got the soldiers the first place judas would have brought them was namely <clears throat> he just left namely the upper room they had been celebrating the passover right and then once they discovered that jesus and the disciples weren't there they then would have taken the soldiers out of the place of prayer that judas knew namely the garden of Gethsemane. so in that context this young man who lived in the upper room would have been sleeping it would have been late uh, he would have been awoken by judas and the soldiers then followed them out in his night clothes in just his night clothes out to the garden to see what's happening out of curiosity and then once they arrest jesus and they start grabbing after his disciples they attempt to arrest this young man pull his garments off and he runs away without any clothes because he was just in one single garment for his nightgown series so to speak right so this is really interesting because we can see and we can actually combine it with a modern theory that the young man in question is saint john mark in other words mark the evangelist because we can see in um acts chapter 12 it actually tells us that john mark was a resident of jerusalem and his mother was close friends with peter and that when peter escaped from prison the first place he went was to the house of john mark's mother in jerusalem so some scholars like the augustinian 28th scholar giuseppe Ricciuti would have just suggested that the best explanation is that actually john mark himself playing kind of a cameo role here right where he does kind of authorial side where he adds this detail because this is where he comes into the story although he wasn't a disciple of jesus his mother provided the lodging for the house of the last supper right and he was a friend of the family and it was kind of his first entry into the story for the life of christ so he tells you about this young man the third person as a kind of a cameo which ancient authors would do in biographies they would list these cameo appearances right so john and some authors ancient authors do this same kind of thing and john did this in his gospel as well where he'll talk about himself as the beloved disciple as we know we know in the third person on a couple of occasions but in any case it's not the most important question in the universe but it's definitely interesting who's the young man in mark's gospel those are best bets right either john the apostle james of the bishop of jerusalem or john mark himself the evangelist the author but there's a no for official church teaching on this so um these theories they're good and it just may be the case that we just don't know who they are in any case what the young man 
illustrates, especially if it's Mark himself, is the fact that Jesus is abandoned by everyone. He's completely abandoned in Gethsemane. And that kind of brings his agony to a climax. Next, I want to highlight um, Jesus before his Sanhedrin. Right. So, in Mark's account, you will see that the reason for Jesus' ex execution is blasphemy, the charges of blasphemy. So, what's kind of going on here is that we'll, we'll look at it as from a Jewish perspective, right? Jewish perspective. In order to put some to death, Jewish law is required at least two witnesses. And we see actually in Deuteronomy chapter 17, says you cannot put someone to death on the testimony of one witness. So they're trying to get all these witnesses to bring a charge against Jesus that would lead to a just sentence of capital punishment. Like he threatened to destroy the temple or something like that. But they can't get any of the witnesses to agree. So finally, we have the, peace, the high priest saying, he stands up and he says, Look, just tell me if you are the Christ, the Son of the Blessed, because that's the real issue driving the trial which is Jesus' identity. And Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. Which, in a first century Jewish context, they would have all known that in the Old Testament, God himself is the one who comes on the clouds of heaven. So God rides on the clouds of heaven. The Lord does that. So for Jesus to say, I am, and you will see me coming on the clouds of heaven, it's to make a divine claim. He's not just claiming to be Christ, he's also, uh, he's claiming to be the son of the blessed one. He's claiming to be divine. He's claiming to share the authority with God when he says, you will see me seated at the right hand of power. Which means he is seated at the right hand of God. And there's actually a Jewish New Testament scholar, Joel Marcus. He points out that when you sit on someone's throne, it means you have equal authority to them. So, and then ancient context so for Jew, for so for jesus to sit on the throne of god means he is equal with god and that's the root of the charge of blasphemy right so Cephas here uh hears jesus make this claim about sitting on god's throne and coming on the clouds and he says we've all heard the blasphemy we don't need to get two more witnesses so, we have the whole Sanhedrin to witness to his blasphemy. And so, they charge him with death. This is the punishment for blasphemy that we'll learn about in Leviticus chapter 24. We bring it, so I'm going to bring it up here because it's worth highlighting. Um, something that scholars sometimes make claims about a Mark's gospel that is, um, has a very low Christology. In other words, in Mark's gospel, unlike the gospel of John, Jesus is just human. He's just man, right? But in John's gospel, he's defined. But that's false dichotomy. We see it, right? It's not true. Both in Mark and John, Jesus is fully human, but he's also fully divine. And that's what's going on here. So if Jesus isn't making a divine claim, then why are they charging him with blasphemy? It was not blasphemy in first century Judaism to claim to be the Messiah. All Messiah was was the long-awaited king of israel you can't be charged with blasphemy for claiming to be the messiah but to claim to have divine power to be equal to god now that's different 
That's what he gets charged for here in the Gospel of Mark. So all four Gospels present us with a divine Jesus. Uh, with a Jesus who is claiming to be divine. And not only claiming it, but being executed for that claim in his trial before the Sanhedrin. All I wanted to highlight there, um, really interesting, and we'll be getting um, so into so much in the next few days, and then finishing up with Mark's Gospel on Sunday. If there's any questions, oh, sorry I went a little over time, but a lot to digest, right? there's no question, we'll end in prayer.